Welcome to the Victory of the Lamb podcast. We are a simple, straightforward Bible teaching church in Katy, Texas. If you are in the area, we'd love for you to stop by anytime. Otherwise, we hope you use this podcast to grow in your faith and be confident in sharing it with many. You can find us online at VOTL.org. We hope you enjoy this message, and God bless your week. Well, that was not what I was expecting. I am sure that all of you have said that or thought that many times during your life. Sometimes because something was better than expected. Other times because it was far worse. I recently returned from a trip to Israel, and there are several times that I said that, as well as probably anybody who travels to any country for the first time. That was not what I was expecting as we're on the Mount Carmel where Elijah had the showdown with the prophets of Baal and in the distance is lush farmland as far as the eye can see. I thought it was more out in the wilderness. I was not expecting the Jordan River to be more like a creek by our standards in the vast majority of places. It was very small, really. And I was not expecting, even though I was confident that a home where the Apostle Peter lived in Capernaum was small. I didn't expect it to be as small as as what it was. Maybe a little bit bigger than my office where five adults lived. Definitely not bigger than my office and Vicar's office put together. That was not what I was expecting. It's something that we say not only when we visit other countries or go through the ups and downs of life, but also... When we encounter Jesus, today, on the pages of Scripture, we are going to see Jesus causing people to say, that was not what I was expecting. And let's see why Jesus said that, and then how everybody who said that landed in a wonderful place, as they trusted him, even though it wasn't what they were expecting him to do and say at first. We begin... With John chapter 4, verse 4. Now he had to go through Samaria. That seems like an ordinary verse. But it certainly is something that would cause anyone to say, that was not what I was expecting. Here's why. There were Jews and there were Samaritans. Jews lived in two provinces. Galilee in the north, where Jesus spent a lot of time in his ministry. Nazareth, his hometown, the Sea of Galilee was there. Jews also lived in Judea, in the south, where Jerusalem was. In the middle of Galilee and Judea was Samaria. Samaritans lived in Samaria, while Jews lived in Galilee and Jews lived in Judea. Now when Jews were traveling from Galilee to Judea, or from Judea to Galilee, they pretty much never went right straight through, south to north or north to south, because Jews and Samaritans hated each other. They took the time and effort to go all the way around, and both Jews and Samaritans would have said, that is well worth the trouble. We don't want to encounter people like you. They both thought they were the real deal religious group. Jews would have said, we are the real deal, and we worship in Jerusalem. 
Samaritans would have said, no, we are the real deal, and we have our own worship stuff in Samaria. But what do we find with Jesus as he's traveling from Galilee to Judea, from Judea to Galilee? Now he had to go through Samaria. Jesus just had to go right through, even though nobody else would, even though everybody who noticed this would say, that was not what I was expecting. Whether they were Jews or Samaritans, they both would have said that. Why would Jesus do such a thing? He came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Notice that Jesus, when going through Samaria, didn't just tiptoe through as quickly as possible, not looking to the left or the right. He sat down in a popular place. Jacob's well, which was 100 feet deep, often the only source of water around. And he sat down there at noon in the heat of the day, almost certain that he would encounter somebody. He was looking for someone to talk to in this unfamiliar, hostile territory. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. I am very sure the Samaritan woman thought immediately, this is not what I was expecting. Because men did not start conversations with women in general. Jews definitely did not start conversations with Samaritans or the other way around. And here's a stranger talking to this lady who is there by herself. And it's reasonable to assume not only did men or Jews not talk to this lady, neither did any other Samaritan women. Because they often went to get water in the cool of the day, either first thing in the morning or the evening, together for protection. Not alone. But as we're going to find out later, as we get through these scriptures, this particular lady had already had five husbands and five divorces and now had a live-in boyfriend. She was shunned as an outcast by her own kind. But here Jesus is, asking her for a drink. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. The next phrase very well could be, This was not what I was expecting. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you asked him for a drink and he would have given you living water. Jesus already is starting a conversation, giving this woman the time of day, having a listening heart, the dignity of friendship, even though no one else had done that for who knows how long. And it was all aimed at what? All aimed at helping her hear him and his mission as to why he had come to talk to people just like her about things just like this. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. 
But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. By now, the woman knew these two things about Jesus. He is very different than anyone I've talked to, number one. And number two, he's talking about work stopping. No one has ever taught like this. And Jesus, of course, was not talking about physical work stopping, but spiritual work, trying to be right with God, trying to undo the sins of the past, trying to have peace in some way, shape, or form. Having living water come up from within you instead of having it be out there and the only thing that comes up from within you is sinful yuck. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus, perhaps with a little smile, said, Go call your husband and come back. He knew the story. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. In order for Jesus to help this woman have living water, he first needed to address her sinfulness. And so that's what he did. Not in a way that would clobber her into the ground. Not in a way that would manipulate her into a confession like an interrogator. But in a loving way so that she could see that this rebuke was coming from a trusted source. But notice how she responded. Sinful people, no matter who they are, no matter what they have done, don't like admitting their sin. Instead, she deflects blame, quickly changes the subject. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. How did you know that? Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. She deflected the topic from her marriage history to a hot-button worship issue of Jews say you have to worship in Jerusalem. That's the real deal religious spot. Samaritans say you have to worship in Samaria. That's the real deal spot. She brought up that. Figured that would stall out this other conversation for a while because she didn't want to talk about her past. And yet Jesus brought it right back to the best possible place. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. That doesn't matter at all what you're talking about. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. We'll drill deeply into that verse in a little bit. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. That's the main point, not externals. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus again, gave her something she wasn't expecting. He declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. What a shocking day for that woman. 
What a wonderful thing she wasn't expecting. What a shocking day for the disciples. What a wonderful thing they weren't expecting. See, Jesus truly have no ranking system, not just with his words, but also with his actions. The only one who wasn't shocked by all of this was Jesus. Wouldn't you say? He told the woman and us that a day is coming when the true worshipers, the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit, with their heart, and in truth, in line with the word, not just their feelings. And today, that's us, isn't it? Aren't we worshiping the Father in spirit with our hearts, as well as in truth, God's holy word with no mistakes? We are one of many fulfillments of Jesus saying this to this woman on this day. But that's not always the case, is it? What does our sinful nature look like when God tells us worship in spirit and in truth? Sometimes our feelings, the spirit part, our heart, drives the facts. God says, whoever believes in me will live even though he dies, but whoever does not believe in me stands condemned. And when there's someone we love who holds Jesus out, we don't want to accept that they're condemned without him. Instead, our feelings drive and say, oh, I'm sure they're fine. Oh, I'm sure they're okay. We slip into an all roads lead to God religious philosophy like the rest of the world has, ignoring the truth because our feelings are driving. Something happens and it's overwhelming and it's scary and it's difficult to walk that road. Our feelings drive and get the best of us Assuming God won't help. He's not capable of helping. And what now? That would be another example when we are full of feelings, full of spirit, full of heart, but no truth to guide us and anchor us. The list could go on. So many times feelings drive instead of facts. Having ranking systems and ranking people higher or lower. Think about that. When have I worship God with my feelings that were off base, not grounded in truth. Because the scripture also says there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. Your feelings are not the holy word of God. God's word is. What about the other side of that half and half combination? What if we worship in truth but not heart? Our bodies are here listening to the word, but our hearts aren't really engaged. We open the Bible to read it and we read the sentences, but meh is the response. You ask, if someone were to ask you later on, what did you read? What did you hear about in service today? You'd say, I don't know. Didn't really move my needle much. That would be an example of being around the truth with your head, but not engaging with your heart. Approaching God as though you know it all already and don't need to listen anymore. Think about that. How you've worshipped God with truth, perhaps, but not spirit. When you consider a long look, letting God call sin where it is sin in your life, of worshipping with your heart and feelings, but not truth, or worshipping by being around the truth, but your heart's not in it. There is a long, long list 
of ways we fall short. But Jesus gave us what we were not expecting. Jesus gave us a perfect life. His own perfect life. Someone who was always dialed into God's truth with all of his heart. His spirit was all in all the time. Whether it was an easy time or a hard time, didn't matter. Whether he was talking to friends or someone like the Samaritan woman that no one would ever expect he should be talking to, it didn't matter. And he always was grounded in truth. Never once, not even once, did his feelings or his conscience have something off track than what God would say. Never once was he a loose cannon or an unanchored feeling heart person. Jesus worshiped the Father in spirit and in truth. And he did that every minute of every day until he willingly gave himself up for us so that we could have peace of living water welling up within our soul. So that we could have a joyful conscience, a conscience at rest as we stand before God. Not just standing there with all of our sins of letting our feelings drive or letting the truth be heard but not caring about it. But instead to say, Lord, you are my Savior. I am your child. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And I have peace today in your presence, in your holy presence. Even though you hate sin so much, I have peace here, now, because of Christ's finished work. That's the main point of what he was saying to the Samaritan woman. When you trust in Christ, the work stops. Not the work of being a Christian. Not the work of loving others. Not the work of battling your sinfulness. That'll carry on till the day we die. But the work that stops is the work of wondering, do I have peace with God or not? Is God with me today or not? Can I lean on Him and what He says or not? When something unexpected pops up as it always will, will He guide me through it or not? Those questions are over because we have living water drinking from Jesus' own mouth, drinking from Jesus' own heart that wells up to eternal life and is such a blessing for anyone around. Drink of that water yourself regularly, often. Be humble. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. Keep listening. And as you open the Word, ask God to help you listen in a way that honors Him. Ask God to help your heart to be lined with His truth. And not just following my feelings, and not just coldly around the truth, but not caring. Ask God to change your heart. He can do it. He will do it. He wants to do it. All He wants is your heart in the end anyways. And then after you, have drunk deeply from this well of living water called the Holy Scriptures centered on Jesus and His eternal forgiveness. Now, you go share that with someone else. Go be an oasis for them in their life that looks like a desert. Go give them some living water when otherwise there simply isn't any other refreshment around. And as you download all of the difficult things going on in the world, all of the disruptive things happening in your life, all of the unsettling possibilities that you might dream up, 
It can be very overwhelming to think about giving someone living water. So work hard to set aside all of the extreme possibilities. Set aside the idea that you have to be the Savior for millions of people all at once in the next five minutes and, and shrink it down to just one. Who is one person in my life that is holding Jesus out at arm's length that can use living water that I have found? Scale it down to that. Ask God to change your heart. Ask God to give you guidance. Ask God to give you a chance. And then be at peace in your conscience. On this trip that I just returned from to Israel, there's a place called En Gedi. And it's a surprising place. Another one on the list of what I wouldn't have expected. It was a place among the caves where David went from cave to cave to cave to cave as he was on the run from King Saul. For those who don't know, King Saul was the first king of Israel. And then after David had killed Goliath, Saul grew very jealous of David, who had been handpicked by God to be the next king of Israel after Saul. And David had to run into the caves and in the wilderness for his life. David was on the run before assuming the palace for 10 or 11 years. How's that for a rough start? Because the king who is on the throne today has basically abandoned governing his country and only cares about his killing you. And so you're out in the wilderness, off the beaten track, running for your life. And out there, David found a water source, an oasis called En Gedi, this, this oasis, this spring of water in the middle of absolutely nowhere. That was a wonderful place for him to be. Many think that was the place where David wrote some or many of his psalms, at least the ones that have the attached tag of history that he wrote this psalm when he was on the run from Saul. David had this oasis, this water, this spring, this peaceful spot in the middle of the storm that helped him tremendously. You can be that oasis for someone else. You can be that oasis for someone else whose life looks like a train wreck and a disaster with only more train wrecks ahead. You can be that oasis for them to give them the living water Jesus alone provides. God bless you as you adopt Christ's heart without a ranking system to give anyone the living water that wells up to eternal life. Amen. Time is precious. Thank you so much for investing some of your time with us today. Could I ask you for one more favor? If you're enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to click subscribe and give us a rating. Just a few seconds of your time will help other people hear the simple, straightforward Bible message we offer. Thank you so much. God bless your day in Christ.